So, the reading is from 1 John, chapter 2, starting at verse 12. How I love to read the word of God. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Amen. Amen. Well, how are we doing? Good? A little bit of audience participation every now and again? Put masks on and everyone's like silent. But um, as, as Susie said, as Rachel so wonderfully read, um, this term we are going through the book of 1 John. Um, so over the course of like 12 weeks through the autumn, we're going to work our way through it. And um, we've entitled this series, Radiant Light, Love on Fire. Just kind of highlight some of the, the main themes going on of it and how John kind of writes. He talks about this light really contrasts with the darkness. And then the second half of the, the, second half of the book kind of focuses more on uh, love, both like experienced from God, experienced and expressed outward as well. So if you're, if you're making notes, um, the title for this morning, I want it to be bolder, but I usually find myself very un unimaginative. And I ended up just using scripture from elsewhere as my title for a, for a sermon. So the title this morning is Fight the Good Fight, Keep the Faith. You can add any sort of grammar. I don't really understand grammar very well. I'd like to put a semicolon in, um, but I'm not really sure if it's the right one. Maybe a hyphen? I like the semicolon. But Fight the good fight, keep the faith. Someone wise said recently, 1 John is hardcore. Thanks, Lou, last week. But jokes aside, 1 John isn't, it's not all love. It's not all lovey-dovey. It's also about truth, and it's about obedience and how we respond to that truth. 1 John is an invitation to, to set aside our old ways of life. To walk by the radiant light of God, not our own. It's an invitation to be cleansed and purified by the blood of Jesus. 
It's an invitation to walk just as Jesus walked, to participate in his love, not merely receive it in a worship service for the 25 minutes that were serenaded by the worship band. And ultimately, it leads to this question, will you build an altar for God with your life? Will you build an altar for God with your life? From the outset, I want to be, be clear that this letter, just like many of the other letters, they're written to a plural audience. It's not written just to, to individuals, but to a community of faith. Because our faith is not merely internal and personal or subjective, like maybe the world would want us to believe. Because if following Jesus is reduced to merely something internal, and personal and subjective, then it has zero impact on the world. But the world needs the church, it needs us, it needs the body, the community of believers to look like Jesus. The world needs the church to look like Jesus. The church needs to resemble, to use like the language from Hebrews, the church needs to resemble the radiance of God's glory. That's what we want to do. We're not just here to like tickle your ears and maybe your intellect. I want to inspire you for this real change. That you come out resembling the radiance of God's glory. Does that sound all right? Yeah? Right. So the reading today is kind of split into to two. There's both the, the encouragement or what I'm going to emphasize is this like prophetic declaration over us all. So it's kind of like good news first. And then it's the, what people say is the exhortation. It's like urging us against something, warning us against this lifestyle, which is inherently opposed to God. So we get the, the first three verses, this what's printed as poetry. I think it's quite useful. It, it provides a bit of a break as you're reading 1 John, uh, a break for us. But I think it's also a break for, for the author as well in which we're able to, to stop and assess the practical application of all the truths that, that he's already shared and how we can apply those to our own life. Maybe a funny anecdote. Apparently there's, um, there's one exegetical theory that goes that actually John was dictating his letter and then he was rudely interrupted and, um, and then he kind of was like, oh, where was I? And the scribe was quite literal. And so that's why you get the repetition of these like three statements seemingly repeated. Did anyone else catch that as we're doing it? I have to admit, over the summer, I was listening to an audio version. And I was just like, gosh, they've really taken creative license just deciding to repeat like whatever verses they like. But it's not. It's, I want to emphasize the fact this is like an intentional uh, thing that, that John has done as he's written this letter. You could really like break it down into like different tenses and stuff, but that is like beyond my pay grade. I just start texting one of the young adults who's like an English master's student, being like, what do these tenses mean? She didn't know either, so I'm not gonna uh, even try. But what I wanna emphasize is the fact that this first section, these first three verses we're reading today, it's a set of prophetic declarations to encourage us to step into our, our destiny, into our, our calling, into our future, whatever Christianese idea you want to, word you want to ascribe to it. 
prophetic declaration. And again, this isn't just to like puff up your ego. My own personal story is I arrived here seven years ago, eight years ago. Green behind the ears, fresh faced, was like barely consider myself an adult, age 24, but going on 18, I think. But it was the prophetic encouragement and the words spoken by the community here. Whether it was James and Lou, whether it was the church wardens, whether it was like Patrick and Philly, whether it was like you guys who were with us back then. I would describe it as these prophetic encouragements, they, they laid the red carpet for me to walk out my life. So when I turned up daunted by the prospect of pioneering youth ministry, it was the prophetic encouragement saying, no, God says you are a pioneer. God says you are a leader. God says you will be a spiritual father. All these things which I would have never have attributed to myself. As a student at my church in London, I was much happier just like serving teas and coffee and then the odd brownie because I also got one for free afterwards as well. But... But it's this prophetic encouragement that laid the red carpet. Said, you're a pioneer, you're a leader. You can be a strong husband. You can be a spiritual father. You can be an earthly father. The things that both terrified me, but also that I did not have vision for in my own life. But someone declared what God saw of me, what God's truth was. So in the same way, John is writing to this audience saying, actually, speaking things that don't appear so, he's speaking truth that they are. Does that make sense? I also want to clarify almost like one, one part of this. It, it appears, this might be a bit of a controversial theological idea, but it appears as though he, he writes it to three different age groups, age demographics, like children, the fathers and young people, young men. Also, please don't let the, um, the male heavy language be a stumbling block. <laughs> Fathers and mothers, young men and women. But I wanna say is he's not ranking the, like, the church in their spiritual maturity. He's not saying, oh, little children, just like the baby Christians who've just come to know Jesus. And then those who've like kind of known Jesus for a few years, and then the fathers, oh, they've known, they've known Jesus for like at least 10 years. What we get if you, if you trace John's use of language is he, his, when he says little children, he's not referring just to like spiritual infants. This is his affectionate term for the whole church. So whether you've followed Jesus for two minutes or like 80 years, little children, this is you, okay? And fathers, these are the, you might say, the, the older members of the church, often those like responsible for, for leadership, governance, those people that we just naturally look to. And then young people, both the, the current and the next generation, those that, that still need to work, still need to fight, that's you. When he says young people, we're not exclusively, it's like, oh, it's just Sam Decas or George. It's like, it's the vast majority of us. Does that sound all right? Yeah. The other kind of, I don't know, you've got to open. 
six times, he says, because. And I want to highlight this. He says, every single clause, I'm writing to you little children, because. I'm writing to you fathers, because. There's an emphasis on the truth that John wants his audience to receive. There's an emphasis on the truth that, that we need to receive as we read it today. So we can stay walking in the light. Maybe it might be helpful, I know particularly in, in verse 14, when it's like the repetition, the tense slightly changes, some of the language slightly changes. Some people say, actually, you can, you can better understand it as if he's saying that. It also helps the, the notion of it being this prophetic encouragement declaration over us. I'm writing to you children that you know the Father. I'm writing to you young people that you are strong. Does that sound all right? Because you six times, there's an emphasis on the truth. But there's also an imperative on our response to these biblical truths. We must walk in, we actually must take a step and walk into the truth that is spoken over us, not merely be passive to it. Is that all right? So actually it's not something just to make us feel good this morning and get like the kind of endorphins, chemicals going, all the happy stuff going to our brain, but it's truth that enables us to walk into a real life change. So he says, little children, all of us, we must remember that our sins have been forgiven. This is like Christianity 101. Our sins have been forgiven. There's nothing that separates us from this, this fellowship we talked about, this divine, holy unity with God and with others. There's nothing that separates, separates us from him anymore. It's not merely that we can worship God and be righteous, but rather we are, are drawn into this intimate relationship with us. So actually have a relationship with Abba, Father. There's an intimacy to it, not merely a reverence. There's both. And this is all on account of his name. So when Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he, he used the language, just kind of sum up grace. And he says, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift from God. It's on account of of his name. Fathers, I'm writing to you because you know him who is from the beginning. You do kind of get echoes from, from the very first verse of 1 John, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard and seen and looked upon with our eyes. I should just be quoting to Timothy, but has anyone ever seen the movie The Book of Eli with Samuel Jackson? Yep, Rick Goring. If you watch that gory movie, lots of limbs being chopped off, I'm sorry, but he's, old, he's a blind man of faith. But right at the end of the movie, this guy is essentially carrying out God's mission, to paraphrase lots of things. He's, he's laying on his deathbed, and whoever wrote the movie, they use this passage from 2 Timothy, chapter 4, this kind of Paul's final remarks, Timothy. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 
have to know. I watched this kind of as a early on in my Christian journey. Kind of had to look at whether this was actually like biblical or not. But I think, gosh, when I'm on my deathbed, this is the kind of prayer that I want to be able to genuinely pray. God, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race that you laid out for me. I've kept the faith. Fathers, this is the, and mothers, this is the, the example, the inspiration that you lay, lay down for me. I look to you guys, my gosh. You guys have, have fought the fight. You've kept the faith. So please just continue to walk in that. Continue to be these pillars and like anchors of our community of faith. Give us this experiential love over time that you have fostered and nurtured. And like a diamond under pressure, you have formed something which is a resource to the rest of us. So take that as an encouragement and affirmation and just keep doing it, please. And finally, young people. There's probably more of you than you think. A bit too frequently now, we're like, oh no, I'm not young anymore. No, this is probably you. You are conquerors, you are overcomers, even if you don't see it. As much as this, maybe it's a bit, a bit cliche and more in our more charismatic streams of churches, but there is a violent undertone to our discipleship to Jesus, to how we live out our, our walk, how we deal with the challenges of life, but more importantly, the sin of life as well. Let's not be shy about talking about it, but he says you are, you have conquered the evil one. You've overcome the evil one. There's a violent undertone to it. On Colossians, it says, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. There's no biblical precedence for diplomacy when it comes, from, when it comes to your sin. There's a mandate for a violent approach. So let's stop like wrestling with it or even like hosting it as a guest in your life. Let's be ruthless and let's be without mercy to the sin in our life. Does that sound right? He says, ultimately, young people, you are strong. How many of us like genuinely feel strong all the time? If you're listening to the podcast, there were very few hands, weren't there? <laughs> but let's really believe it. Why don't we read it? Young people, because you are strong, actually believe it. For this strength we have, it's not by our own merits. It's not by looking deep within ourselves and finding something that was there. Like, I'm sorry if, I don't know, I'm not particularly like sensitive towards postmodern progressive ideas. And I do end up mocking them quite a bit, so I apologize. But this strength we have, it's not from looking deep within ourselves. Or again, I'm really sorry if you're a Regina Spector fan. But she wrote this song that had these lines that says, I'm the hero of this story. I don't need to be saved. And that you see, like, young women will get it, like, tattooed on them. This isn't like an anti-feminism message. It's just... You're not the hero of this story. 
and like you do need to be saved that's like the basics of the christian message but the beauty of it is we're not like here sad about it we get to celebrate because jesus is the hero and he did save us okay you are strong that's the declaration that john declares over you the psalmist says i lift my eyes to the hills where does my help come from my help comes from the my help comes from the lord not from within but from him brothers and sisters you are strong and you need to be because life is hard like faithfully following jesus not just today like it's always been hard God gives you that strength. God gives you that strength to declare the truth of who he is. God gives you that strength to endure the challenges that life throws at you. All the disappointment, all the adversity, all the stuff that you didn't necessarily deserve but someone threw that crap at you anyway. When relationships don't really play out just like the Hollywood movies, God says you're strong. Not to endure injustice, but to like to fight for for something. You're strong when you feel like you stand all alone and you're a beacon of God's light in a dark place. Maybe that's your workplace, your whatever it is. You're strong. One of my sisters, she lives out in New Zealand, and I have to admit, after visiting. Um, I've become a bit of a fanboy of both like the country and the culture of New Zealand. Um, I'm surprised my sister doesn't like tell me I'm an idiot more often. But I was listening to it's like an audio book of this Christian Kiwi guy who wrote it, and he kind of constantly interlinks um, both like Christian heritage and history and culture with like Maori culture as well. And he says that the Maoris have this idea of time, and they have this phrase that's it's translated as saying. We walk into the future backwards. And it's this notion that constantly rooted by, by the history and the heritage. And he, cre- he's, he used this imagery of it's like rowing a boat. You're rowing it, but you're moving in the direction that your back is faced. And that's often like our walk with Jesus. But it's God's presence with us use that analogy he's the one on the boat that he can see your future it's God's presence and his truth that accompany accompany us into the unknown brothers and sisters you are strong the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one so let that prophetic declaration just live in your heart okay right that was the encouragement that's the uplifting bit now i have to come tell you off well not quite the tone somewhat changes it was a bit blunter you don't really need to explain it that much john just says do not love the world do not love the world and it's really easy to to read passages this and and it kind of leads you just to withdraw from all areas of life all areas of society 
He's not calling us all to be monks and like build a monastery up on the hill. I want to say there's a big difference between withdrawal versus renunciation, which is just giving things up, rejecting things. Does that make sense? We still need to be very present in this world. We still need to be this light to the world. So when John says, do not love the world, it gets a bit confusing. Because at the same time, the same guy that wrote, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. I want to say when he says, do not love the world, he doesn't mean creation, which we know is good. He doesn't mean people, because they've been declared very good. And also he says, because he so loved the world. What he's trying to say is our, our cultural and societal practices, which are inherently opposed to God. So he's saying, do not love these. Do not love these practices, but rather reject them, give them up, do things differently. Face the challenges of life differently because of this light that you walk in, this light that now resides within you as well and amongst you. Do not love the world. I have to have like a clarification here. I did not study Greek. I know very little Greek. Like, I know three words maybe, and this is one of them. But he says, do not love, do not, and it's this word agape. It's like the highest form of love, which is essentially personified in the person of Jesus, and this self-sacrificial love. He says, do not love the world, do not agape the world. Do not love all these cultural and societal practices which are opposed to God with this self-sacrificial love. Lou said to us last week, love comes at a cost. And this love that we often have for the world, it comes at a cost to us. It demands something from us and it's not the good kind. When Jesus was speaking to his disciples about discipleship, he said, for what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? It's a bit of a rhetorical question because it won't profit them at all. When we talk about do not love the world, this isn't, I want to say it's less about our, our possessions, but rather our attitudes and our heart posture towards them. I was really struck a few weeks ago, James, he was, he was talking about that Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. He says, what must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? You must sell everything. And it's not that you have to, but it's would you. What's your heart posture towards it? Would you sell everything? For all that is of the world, it doesn't come from the Father, but comes from the world. Can list and he lists out the desires of the flesh. You can go read that like horrendous list in Galatians 5 of all the things of the flesh. It's not a pleasant list. What's the flesh are obvious? Fornication, impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness. They're obviously opposed to God's way. They don't lead to life. They don't enrich us or nourish us in any way. Because we are, we're not just spiritual beings in a body. We are embodied spirits and the two are interlinked. So the physical things we do, they impact the spiritual, they have an effect. 
please don't hear that as then there's like an inherent shame or guilt on your past. If you read through 1 John, it talks about it right at the beginning of, of right at the end of chapter 1. Because he has like purified us, cleansed us from all unrighteousness. Desires of the flesh. What about the pride in riches or a lot of other translations or translators, the pride of life. I don't know whether this story is actually true, but I heard it and I like the, uh, the sentiment of it. Apparently, whenever the Pope is made the Pope, is he inaugurated? I'm not sure. Whenever the Pope is made the Pope, he's in his Pope-mobile, he's on his procession going through the Vatican. Apparently, there's, there's one person's job is to stand behind him and just whisper in his ear, remember that you too must die. Remember that you too must die. Sounds a bit ominous. It's just that reminder to just to stay humble. It's like a similar Latin phrase just translated as like, so passes the glory of the world. Just passes away. He says it in verse 17. Contemporary society is so characterized by this enthronement of the ultimate modern-day deity, which is ourselves. So when we pose this question of, will you build an altar with your life to God? That is much more radical to our surrounding culture than we think. What about the desires of the eyes, that which we covet? You get a plethora of cautionary tales in scripture. You get in the Old Testament that wonderful mighty King David when all his soldiers were out to war he stood there looking out the window and forgot his one desire to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord all the days of his life and instead he finds himself gazing on the beauty of another man's wife. Gazing at a life that wasn't his own. Or in, in Joshua 7 you get Achan who Seeing the spoils of war, he coveted the treasure and he dug and buried that treasure in his tent. So the question is, whose life do we gaze at? What do we gaze at? What treasures have we buried in our lives, buried in our heart? That creates a, a boundary between us and God. Because worldliness is not merely external, but it affects us so much deeper than that. In the epistles, there's another cautionary tale which I'd often overlooked entirely. So you get the, the, the person of Demas, who in the letter to, to Philemon is described as a co-worker of Paul. In Colossians, it's like, again described as like one of the missionary companions, travelers. And again, in 2 Timothy, it says this about Demas. It says, for Demas, who was in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. We know that God is a jealous God. He is jealous or translated as passionate God. He desires us. clearly moved Paul enough that his 
companion Demas had walked away, how much more did it grieve God's own heart? This why leaves us with our, the invitation. Do not love the world. But would you humble, would we all humble ourselves and enthrone Jesus and Jesus alone so we may walk in the radiant light of God's glory? Let's pin our lives on the truth. Not just an idea, but pin our lives on the person of Jesus. Truth personified. Not our internal, subjective ideas of truth or feelings. But let's pin our lives on the person of Jesus. Does that sound all right? To summarize, I'm just going to borrow the, the language from the psalmist. Psalm 119, he says, turn my eyes from worthless things, O Lord, and give me life in your ways. Such a powerful but also dangerous prayer. Turn my eyes from worthless things. Give me life in your ways. As we said, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where will my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the one who made heaven and earth. Should we take a moment? Should we pray? I might even attempt to lead us in song, but we'll see how that goes. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for being who you are, that you are revealed throughout Scripture, that you are revealed in the person of Jesus, that your spirit still dwells amongst us to lead us into this truth of who you are. Father, we thank you that with an outstretched hand, you lead us into your light and out of our darkness. You cleanse us, purify us from all unrighteousness. Lead us into a place where our joy may be complete. Father God, may these truths penetrate our hearts and our lives. May they impact the way we walk. May we know how forgiven we are. May we know you. And may we know the strength that you have placed within us. Father, continue to lead us as we meditate on those questions. What life do we gaze at? What treasures are buried? Hidden. Turn our eyes to you and you alone.